Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage and I hope you had a lovely Christmas. In the next two programmes I look back over the year at some of the guests and subjects that have been on the show over the past 12 months. I'm always so grateful to people for their time and knowledge which makes this programme possible. Early in the year, Molly O'Dell visited Hong Kong. In her 80s, Mrs. O'Dell is the daughter-in-law of the late impresario Harry O'Dell, who was a larger-than-life character. Born in Cairo, Harry O'Dell went to Shanghai. He was later a tap dancer in Nagasaki, fought in the First World War for the Americans in France, then would later come to Hong Kong, where after the war, he set up the Empire Theatre which later became the State Theatre, and the building still exists today in North Point. So that's Harry O'Dell. Molly O'Dell was born in Baghdad. She would go with her family to Japan before experiencing the Second World War as a teenager in Shanghai. She'd get married in the Peninsula Hotel in Hong Kong, which she describes here. This time I wore a silk, silver brocade dress made by a shop called Pacarette. I still have the dress. And what was it called, the, the shop? Pacarette. Okay, yeah. and what, what nationality was that then? The lady was French. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> and was it a short, was it, did you have Long a veil? Or? Yeah, I had a veil, a six-yard veil, and, and a pearl tiara that I had seen Joan Fontaine wear in a movie magazine. Hello. Oh, I'd begun to think you'd never call. Damon, you sound so serious. What is it? Oh, well, that is serious. Any special reason? Oh, but Damon, everyone needs help at one time or another. As a matter of fact, I, I was hoping you'd help me. I was hoping you'd take me along with you on your trip to the stars. Oh, if I was taking too much for granted, forgive me, but I was thinking... Oh, no, no, it's, it's nothing but... Uh, I was thinking this is such an impersonal way to say goodbye. Couldn't we talk about it over a drink? Where are you? Oh, well, if if you can make it up the elevator, I could make it to the bar. Oh, perhaps you're right. This way is so simple and uncomplicated. You just put down the receiver and the line is dead. But, darling, if you change your mind, the door's open. You actually had the wedding at the peninsula? Or? Wedding at the peninsula, about 400 people. We knew about 100 and his family knew 300. Yes. <laughs> you know, so they're old timers. And then we had a dinner in our home. And then I went on my honeymoon to Boulder Lodge that belonged to the Kaduris because I didn't have a passport at that point. Because in April of that year, I think Israel independence and we lost our passports oh tell me a little bit so that's 1948 so how come because i mean you're you're originally iraqi so jews and so our passports were taken away from us so we all had to scramble to get passports one of them bought a panamanian passport because we were jewish and israel then became an independent state the our iraqi passports were Cancelled? Would that be the word? By whom? I guess the Iraqi government. They were not recognized anymore. Oh, I see. The Jewish population. Yes. Molly O'Dell there, a really lovely interviewee. 
40 years ago, Australian Joel DeLacy tried out for a job at commercial radio. The interviewer at the time, after offering him the job, said he hoped that he wouldn't be temporary. Well, Joel has just marked 40 years in the radio biz. Here, he describes reporting on a fire among the hillside squatter huts, which sadly was a common occurrence. And then also in the 1980s, he describes doing traffic reports from a helicopter. In the early 1980s, I was working part-time in the newsroom on a Saturday night because they were short-staffed. I went to a uh, fire in Natal Kok in a squatter area. People forget how the hillsides in Hong Kong were just covered in squatter huts and there was no trees because they'd all been cut down for firewood. But there was a big fire in a squatter settlement. About two or 3,000 people lost their homes. And I was there trying to sort of get a story back to the studio and of course no mobile phones in those days I'd have to go knock on someone's door in a nearby housing estate covered in smoke and you know, show them I'm from commercial radio and ask to use their phone to send a report in but you know, there were literally thousands of people running around who'd lost their homes that was that was a very difficult thing in the late 1980s we spent about a year doing helicopter traffic reports in the morning which was <laughs> very enjoyable time we'd meet in uh, one chai at the helipad at about eight o'clock in the morning and lift off and go across Central, across Chun Wan, across to Sha Tin, then across Kai Tak Airport, which was still open at the time, and back to Central telling people what the traffic situation was. Only problem was, in the late 1980s, the only tunnels open were the Cross Harbour Tunnel and the Aberdeen Tunnel, so traffic was pretty much the same every day. It was westbound on King's Road and on Princess Margaret Road traffic's back to Oyman Estate. But when there was an accident or something, we could also uh, give some information about that. But technically it was difficult because we only had mobile phones. Mobile phones great if you're walking around or in a car, but when you're you know, a thousand feet in the air moving at a hundred miles an hour, the signal doesn't always um, stick, so we'd have to go to certain places and hover the helicopter and give our reports. This is the end, beautiful friend. This is the end, my only friend. The end of our elaborate plans. The end of everything that stands. The end, no say. You had your earphones on, or your earmuffs rather, and you're just yelling down the mobile. Well, we had a microphone set up in it because we couldn't use the radio system, but that's basically how it worked. And but, who provided the helicopter? Oh, that was from the local company, Heli Services, but they were providing a helicopter. It was the sponsor that was paying for it, so we thanked them very much. But we did that every day. Joel DeLacy there, marking 40 years at Commercial Radio. In Kowloon Bay is one of my favourite factory warehouse shops, which has been in existence since 1928. It's an Aladdin's cave of stacks of china and is the last company in Hong Kong to do hand-painted porcelain. Plates, dishes, statues, little boxes. Just don't swing your backpack around as the crockery is stacked high among the vases and the door guards. The Yutung China Works has been a family business for 90 years. Singer Danny Kay ordered a dinner set from them in the 1960s and the prices are $100 up for a hand-painted piece.
if you'd like to go and have a visit. Many of the artisans who hand paint the porcelain have been there for decades. I joined Joseph Joe and his wife, Ruby Ip Joe, for a tour. Right now we're still working for many local celebrity or the VIP family or the Western family. When they have some discontinued paint made by overseas famous oh. factory, then we will try to reproduce the pattern for them. Oh, that's great service. Yeah, so that that's why we can survive. We can able to do all kinds of decoration. Besides the hand decoration now, we also improve our painting by transfer paper painting. We call, in France, they call decal. 90% of the overseas porcelain factory all done the porcelain painting by transfer paper painting. That's why now many Japanese visitors came, they treasure our handwork. <laughs> Although the Japan make the best porcelain in, in the world, but all done by transfer paper. Today, the hand paint porcelain is very expensive. How, how does it work then? The first step, we have to import the white porcelain, and then this is in the painting, draw all the lines by free hand. It must have a very steady hand. Like so this, this older gentleman, he's actually painting on the bottom of a yeah. vase. And so we make the trace ah. outline of the design and then they have upper stem. Why we use the, this kind of uh, the foam? Because yes. you can bend, bend on, on the tertiary. So you've got yeah. actually what would look like when I'm doing the washing up, I would use something like that to scrub yeah. my pans. Yeah. And and what what it is is sponge, but you've yeah. actually got the stencil yeah. of yeah, what like, the, like the dragon. Stencil, yeah. yeah, of the exactly. dragon. Yeah. And uh, so you married it. You married into yeah, all of this. Yeah. You don't believe that? <laughs> we, yeah. Well, yeah, congratulations. We, we have our anniversary in uh, January 18. Oh, well done. Yeah. And so, were you involved in porcelain before you got involved with the family? Yes. In fact, uh, porcelain is our language of our marriage. Uh -huh. Yeah. I was a merchandiser in American buying office. So my duty is to take care of the foreigners to buy uh, the merchandise for the department store in USA, such as Law & Taylor, J.R. Robinson, just like Hong Kong, the similar to Lang Carver, expensive department store. They can afford to buy uh, this hand-paint porcelain. And he is one of our suppliers. At that time, it's 1977. We start know each other in business. And I know him and I come the first day and he tell me the terms of the porcelain uh, because also I was a, a beginner also. So we have a lot of uh, chance to talk. And porcelain education. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He is my teacher. <laughs> yeah. So much very steady hands. Also well mix the color. If the color too dilute or too sticky, they cannot stamp the outline well. So they need a very careful and good skill. So who is this artist? I mean, has he been with you for many years? Do you mean the stamping process? No, the gentleman here. The gentleman or in What's fact, his name, if you don't mind? This is Master Chen. He learned that this person painting in Canton. In the, factory. in the other factory first, yeah, before 1970. He served the apprenticeship there. Wow. And, but now fit to Hong Kong, yeah, at that time, the Cultural Revolution. They're very hard living in China, so they're all many of these, uh, the skillful painter, person painter come to Hong Kong. During the new China set up, some of our master teachers went back to Guangzhou to set up 
the Porsche Painting Factory with the government, with the city government. And then he was enrolled to train in that factory. So he's starting off with a perfect white, already glazed yeah. vase, yeah. using these stencils which are on, um, so he's adding blue and white down at the bottom which he'll gradually build. Do you then have to, once you've hand-painted, do you then re-fire? Yeah, first of all, the colour we use is called the overglaze decoration. All the colour is called overglaze. So because we import the white porcelain, we already have the white glaze on, on it and then put the design on top. So after decoration, after stamping, this lady will now fill up the color step by step. So when the decoration is completed, we have to put in our kiln for firing for up to 800 degrees centigrade. 800 degrees? Yeah, yeah. for eight hours. Wow. And then you need uh, to cool down another eight hours. So do you have a kiln here? Yeah, yeah you will see at the end of this row. Yeah. Mm. And you can see this uh, lady, she is doing the coloring. So after the stencil with colour, and then she is putting the colour on each stamping. Joseph Joe and Ruby Ip Joe of the Yutung China Works, which is well worth a visit. Where I'm truly grateful on Hong Kong Heritage is the access I'm given to rural events and cultural aspects of Hong Kong that without some kind translators and social workers, I'd never get to see. And I had several of these wonderful experiences this year. In March, I headed up to Lung Yut Tao near Fan Ling to meet some elderly White Tao ladies who've been encouraged to preserve their White Tao singing and their way of life, food and braiding by social workers from the Caritas Lung Yut Tao Community Development Project. One of the projects has been to document and record songs that are called Bridal Laments, the sad songs sung by the young women who as teenagers or in their 20s would be married off to young men in other villages, often to leave their home villages forever. Those songs and the lives of these women were made into a documentary by social worker Chang Kwok Ming and former social worker Jeannie Ng, who spent 10 years visiting the women. The songs that have been preserved orally by these elderly women talk about their hate as young women for the meddling matchmaker who comes into their homes, their sense of betrayal and trepidation about their new life as, with their father, they pack their chest and then head off with their faces covered in the sedan chair. It was a hard life of bringing in water and grass from the hillsides or going out with the cattle. Some of the marriages were unhappy ones. Which village? I mean, I can see that some high rises there of Fanling in the in the distance. But what village am I in? Longyatao is Longyatao. It's one of the uh, home of the Tang clients for over seven hundred years. Now the Tangs are they Hakka or are they Waitao? They're Waitao, and also there's some Hakka clans also in here. So this place is very interesting and special that mixed with different clans with their own languages. Yes. Yeah. Do you speak Waitao? A little bit when we <laughs> being with the grannies for over 10 years. So the songs is, uh, especially the lyrics, will um, completely describe how they feel for their wedding. 
And then often, as you say, marrying a young man that they've they've never yeah, met, yeah. never seen. Yeah, yes, because they married a young man they they have never seen or they have never known. Uh, they will go to a family far away from their own. So it's actually it's very sad things for for girls. The bride-to-be will process several stages before the wedding. So first of all, they will come back to their own house by the aunties carrying them from the ladies' room to their house. So once they arrive at the house, they will climb the ladder and then go to the upper layer of the home. And when they climb on the upper layer of the home, they will lay down on the bed. There's a mat on it, just like in the Chinese, they are just dead, like a dead body on the floor. And then her friends will sit around her and then they will start singing the song. So the first song is called Song to Begin. Song to Begin is saying that, oh, I'm going to say some bad words to express my anger on this wedding arrangement. But she also afraid that, oh, the bad words will have the bad influence on her family and all her future life. So she pays safe and say that, oh, all the bad words after that will carry by the cockroach and the spider, and then they will take it away. Continuing with the rural theme, I then headed also in March by ferry from Tolo Harbour near University Station to the historic Hakka village of Lychee War, situated in the northeastern New Territories near Shatao Kok. Only about 10 indigenous residents live permanently in this walled village of adobe brick houses, surrounded by lush paddy fields and feng shui woodland. Monty Lai is an artist and farmer who's been farming rice in the village for the past five years. My name is Lai Waiyi, Monty, English name. And I moved here in 2014 as a volunteer to learn farming, basically rice farming. At the very beginning, that's the beginning of the project here. And I came also as uh, with a role of an artist. So when I applied, I was thinking maybe I can introduce the idea of environmental arts to this village, maybe organize some art festival in the village. But now you're knee deep in mud. <laughs> yep. Definitely. And I soon changed my mind because I think just bringing the festival here doesn't mean anything at all, except like photo taking mm. opportunities for the visitors. I, I prefer people to have some hands on experience, like 
get into the mud, being here for at least one whole day to experience the environment, nature, the people here, the culture, the history. That's that's a more in-depth experience of the village, not just like, oh, this is beautiful village and I will take home with a picture. I want them to take home the memories, the experience, instead of just a picture. Well, you've got so involved now, you actually rent a house here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I I rent a house at the very beginning, like just like four, four months after I joined the program. And since I'm an artist, freelance artist, so I'm very used to having a studio space. So renting a space here just like to replace my studio in the city. So what kind of art do you do? I do environmental art and basically I get inspiration from nature. And now I get my inspiration not just from nature but also from the farming practice here. And so I borrow it and then bring it to the city. Here today you've had, what, students actually helping you or volunteers? No, they are not my students. Uh, They are my friends and because probably it's my uh, last season my last fry season here so i'm thinking maybe it's a good chance to let our friends join us not just my friend but like friends friends as well because it's very very tiring and neighbor intensive because i insist to do it with hands with my hands or like without machinery because i think this is the best way to get in touch with our land i have a very good chance to know about the soil, know about the process and the changes in the soil in, in my paddy field. It's so tiring, but like I enjoyed <laughs> it so much. Because I first met you this morning and yeah. um, I just come in by the ferry, but I think you'd started hours before. And, uh, you know, and, and as you say, it's a long day and we've had several big downpours of rain. But is that actually good for the rice? Yeah, actually, it is OK to rain when we do the transplanting. But uh, if it is like pouring this evening for hours and hours, it will be a problem to like the seedlings maybe drift away with the water. So that's my biggest concern here. But um, it seems okay. We pray in the temple. I I, I did this morning over some oranges. Monty Lai there, knee-deep in mud in Lychee War. Conservationist Lu Young helped to turn Maipo Marshes into a popular education centre and did much to make people aware and also to protect some of the wildlife that is dependent on the marshes. Sadly, Lu Young died of a heart attack on a trip to Beijing earlier this year. So, in his memory, I played an interview I did with Lu as we had a lovely morning wandering around the Maipo Nature Reserve back in 2002. Then another group of migratory birds, um, such as the plovers, these, when they fly south, will just stop off in Maipo for a few weeks in the autumn time and then carry on down to Australia where they'll spend the winter. So it's quite a long journey for these birds. Yes, it's a phenomenal distance. I mean, if they're coming down from Siberia or the Arctic Circle all the way down to Hong Kong and some even carrying on, I mean, do... Do they stop on the way? How do they actually keep on going? And also, how many of them survive that trip? Well, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge journey. A number of these birds will fly almost, almost non-stop, um, but others will, will need a number of um, staging posts on the way down. At each of these sites, again, they may stay you know, a week, two weeks, rest, refuel, and off they go again. And then as for mortality during this this very long journey. I don't think anyone's really tried to calculate it in, in Asia anyway. 
for the birds that we get at Maipo, since Maipo is a wetland, most of the birds we get are water birds. So all the migratory birds we get are also more water birds, obviously, and we'll be using the coast of China as, as, as resting sites on the way during the migration. But one big problem that China, like much of Asia, faces at, at, at the moment is coastal reclamation. You know, due to such a great demand for land, for um, construction, for, for ports and so on, you know, much of the coastline, say in countries like Korea and Japan, um, they've almost got no natural coastlines left because everything's been you know, reclaimed. You know, so it's areas like Maipo, which is becoming more and more important, some of the only natural coastlines you know, left, left in Asia. The late Lu Yang there. Pharmaceuticals businessman George Cotherley was born in Stanley civilian internment camp during the Japanese military occupation of Hong Kong. His existence was a conscious decision by his parents so that they would be kept busy during the occupation. Here, George Cotherley describes some of the food at the camp. Well, that was, of course, the big challenge for one's parents was to try and keep you reasonably fed. And my mother told me that basically... Uh, over time, she sold all the jewellery she had on her, because she couldn't take it in, but to get uh, money for food for me. And, uh, I mean, for instance, uh, you, if you were on milk formula, you never got the same brand uh, each time. Uh, you got whatever was available. So as a, as a baby, you had to be pretty tolerant of yes. uh, and what, I was, what came in. And I was going to say, if she, by the time she's giving birth to you, if she has malaria and anemia, yeah. did that have a, any kind of impact on you? Well, obviously not. No, I mean, uh, I mean, when the war ended and we went back to England, my mother was very afraid that I must have all sorts of uh, defects from lack of nutrition, etc. So immediately she took me to the local doctor and he gave me a thorough examination. He said, well, that's about the healthiest three-year-old I've examined in a long, long time. <laughs> so I think it just shows humans adapt extremely well to all of this. And I mean, I do remember part of my diet when I was older, which was congee. And ever since then, I've never liked congee. And one of my actual memories is the congee lineup. And we used to line up to get served our congee from a big cauldron and in metal bowls. And I would proudly hold my metal bowl all along until it came to the congee being put in because it was too hot for me to hold. So it's a hand metal bowl to my father and let him burn his hands on it. Um, so so congee was, was a big staple even for us youngsters. Yeah. Yes. And what else would you have been able to have? I mean, there were vegetables because they could grow vegetables. I think there was very little in the way of meat, but probably that was a good thing. Now what we learn about meat. <laughs> Former British Marine Commander Les Bird has recently written a memoir of his 20 years in the Marine Police beginning in 1976. One of his first jobs was as an inspector at Tayo, which involved overseeing the largest police area of West Lantau, though it was a rural and quiet posting. Les Bird and I wandered around Tayo, and here he describes the old rope ferry, which was replaced by a bridge in the 1990s. Where we're standing now, which is Tayo Creek, which is a 50-foot width water, has a boat going up it now. This used to be serviced by something called a Tayo rope ferry before the bridge was built. And the way we had to cross it was walk down the steps, the stone steps in front of us, where this small contraption known as the ferry actually was a flat wooden platform. You would stand on the platform, and then two old tanker ladies who operated the ferry 
would pull the ferry across via a fixed rope that was stretched across the creek here. The creek runs from the north here, there's an estuary to the north, and then Tayo Bay in the south. journey across would take about two or three minutes, and once you were up the other side, you'd walk up those steps there ahead of us, and people coming this way would get on in the reverse direction. The fare in those days was 20 cents for people. If you wanted to take livestock, it was a varying degree of... There was a menu of prices. If you were taking a pig across, it was 10 cents. The pig had to be in a cage, and if you were taking ducks or chickens, they would have to be in a basket, and ducks and chickens travel free of charge. <laughs> 40 years on, how does it feel being here? Uh, it hasn't changed except for this bridge. It looks pretty much as it was 40 years ago. Former Marine Commander Les Bird there, the author of A Small Band of Men, an Englishman's adventures in Hong Kong's Marine Police. Here's wishing you a happy new year and join me next week for some more highlights from the past year on Hong Kong Heritage.